0: This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang, best selling author of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution Pay Taxes Once, Then Never Again. Now on air and worldwide, paytaxeslater.com. Now get ready to talk smart money. Welcome to the Lang Money Hour. I'm Dan Weinberg along with CPA and attorney Jim Lang. What happens to your IRA after you die? The laws governing IRAs are likely to change in 2017, and if you have more than $450,000 in an IRA, tonight's show is critically important for you. This is the first in a two-part series on the death of the so-called stretch IRA. Now, for many years, inherited IRAs could be stretched for the lifetime of the person who inherits them. In other words, the person could take minimum distributions and leave most of the money to keep growing, income tax deferred. But all signs point to Congress killing the stretch IRA and requiring those who inherit an IRA to pay taxes on all but $450,000 of that money within five years. Now, tonight, Jim is going to run down the current law, the proposed change, and some strategies you can use to maximize your ability to avoid having Uncle Sam take a big chunk of that IRA money. Now, this issue, by the way, is covered in-depth in Jim's new book, The Ultimate Retirement and Estate Plan for Your Million Dollar IRA. It's available free at paytaxeslater.com. Let's get right to it. Good evening, Jim.
1: There are some very important tax laws now brewing Um, In Congress that could likely have an enormous impact on your personal retirement and estate plan. And I think that these changes are so important and the odds of them passing are so high that I actually wanted to do a two hour uh, show. So it's going to be one hour today and then one hour next week on what these changes are and what they're going to look like, and perhaps more importantly, what you should be doing about them now, and what you should be doing about them after they pass. And I can't really overstress how important these issues are, and it will be particularly important for anybody that has an IRA or a retirement plan that is um, more than $450,000 Because this could just make an enormous difference. I mean, the difference of over a million dollars to your kids and grandkids over time if you just ignore this. And even if you don't ignore it, it's still not going to be a good thing. So what I'd like to do is to go over what the law is now. The law now is called the stretch IRA. Then I'd like to talk about how that works. Then I'm going to talk about... What I'll call the death of the stretch IRA, which is the proposed legislation, the odds of it becoming a reality and probably in 2017 is very, very high, probably in the high 90s. And the impact that this could have on your family is so important that I really think that this warrants your attention. So this isn't going to be a, let's say, a light, breezy show in an interview style. It's going to be more of a, here's what the law is. Here's what is coming. Here's what you could do about it. And again, it's so important. And it's also not easy. Um, we, we did write a book about that. Uh, the book, by the way, is available at paytaxeslater.com. Again, the book is available at paytaxislater.com. But right now, I'm going to concentrate on an audio description, um, both the rest of this hour and uh, the following show. So what we're going to talk about is the pending legislation regarding the death of the stretch IRA. But before we could talk about the death of the stretch IRA, first we have to talk about what is the stretch IRA, because we don't know, if we don't know what we're going to kill, then we don't really know the impact of it. So what I'm going to start with is let's assume that you are an IRA owner. And let's assume that you go along with my basic premise, which I have given many, many times in in workshops and articles and peer review journals and in my books, which is don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later. Don't pay taxes now when you are accumulating money for your retirement plan. Don't pay taxes now when you are retired and you're withdrawing money from your our retirement, and your portfolio, and don't even pay taxes now after you're gone. Pay taxes later in all three of those. Don't pay taxes in the accumulation stage, the distribution stage, and the estate planning stage, with the exception of Roth IRAs and Roth IRA conversions. Well, I'm going to skip the accumulation stage for at least our purposes now, and go to the distribution stage and the estate planning stage. So if you take my advice, don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, in the distribution stage, how does what actions can you do? And let's assume for discussion's sake that you either are already 70 or you are approaching 70, and and, and let's even assume that you are retired and that you have to rely on your portfolio to make your ends meet. And let's assume that you basically have two pots of money. You have a pot of money that you've already paid the income taxes on, and you have a pot of money in some type of retirement plan, an IRA, a 401k, a 403b, a SEP, a Keo. For our purposes, it doesn't really matter. But the important thing is when you take money out of your, let's say, after-tax portfolio or the portfolio that you've already paid taxes on, Subject to some potential capital gains, essentially, you're only taking out the amount that you need to spend. So let's say you need $50,000 to spend. You can take out $50,000 and your portfolio is reduced by $50,000. The example number two, let's say that you need $50,000 to spend and you um, take it from your IRA or your retirement plan instead. Well, now you're gonna have to pay income taxes on that money. So now, if you wanna spend $50,000, you're going to have to take $70,000 out of your IRA or your retirement plan. That's going to be taxable. So now, let's assume for discussion's sake that you pay $20,000 in taxes and you're left with $50,000. Well, let's think about it. In the first variation, when you took out $50,000 from the money that you already paid the taxes on, Your portfolio is depleted by $50,000. If you do it the second way, that is take $70,000 out of your IRA, pay $20,000 in tax, you still have the same $50,000 to spend. The difference is is that your portfolio in the second variation is depleted by $70,000 instead of by $50,000 like in the first one. So if you think about it, that extra $20,000 that you depleted your portfolio in the second example, that money, that $20,000 is forever lost and there will be no interest, dividends, capital gains, etc. Where if you spent the money that you already paid tax on, then that $20,000 is still in your portfolio. And so the idea of don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later really um is a determination of which assets you should spend first. And by the way, I'll you so subject to exception. First I want you to spend what I'll call your after-tax dollars, then your IRA dollars, and then the Roth dollars are, are actually the last dollar you should spend because it continues to grow income tax free for the rest of your life, the rest of your spouse's life, and the rest of the, your lives of your children and grandchildren. But anyway, that is the application of don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later in the distribution stage. But wait, you say, hang on, what happens when I turn 70? I might want to let my IRA continue to grow tax deferred, but I'm not allowed to, am I? I, Aren't I required to take some money out of my IRA and pay taxes on it? And the answer is yes, you are. And what is that called? That is called the minimum required distribution of the IRA. All right. Now, by the way, hang on with me because we're, we're going to talk about the dying part later. But let's let's do the living part first, which is probably more fun. All right. So you now have, let's just say, a million dollars in your IRA. And let's assume for discussion's sake that between your Social Security and your after-tax dollars that you have other money that you could spend And you know, the more money that you withdraw from your IRA, what's going to happen is the more taxes you're going to have to pay. And as we saw in that prior example, we don't want to deplete the portfolio by paying taxes earlier than you have to. On the other hand, if you have to, because you're required to do it, you do it. So let's assume that you say, okay, I want to comply with the law, but I only want to take out the absolute minimum that I am required to take out, fine. That is known as the minimum required distribution of the IRA. So how do you calculate the minimum required distribution of the IRA? Well, first you go to a publication called 590. It's also um, available pretty, pretty readily in software. And you get a factor. Um, let's say for discussion's sake you're 70 years old, depending on when your birthday falls, let's assume that that factor is 27.4. So then what you do is you take the 27.4 and you divide that number into the balance as of December 31 of the prior year. Let's say it was a million dollars. Now, if you think about it, dividing 27.4, if you were to change that to percentages, if it was 25, it would be exactly 4%. So since it's a little bit higher than 25, that means the factor is a little bit less than 4%. And the way the math works out is your minimum required distribution is $36,396. All right, so you have to take that money out and pay income taxes on it, whether you like it or not. All right, what happens the next year? Well, the next year, the divisor changes, and it it changes because the um, life expectancy, which is how the divisor is determined, and by the way, The life expectancy is not just your life expectancy. When you're 70 years old, for example, uh, the the IRS doesn't assume that you have a life expectancy of 27.4 years. To oversimplify, they assume that you are going to use the the lowest number possible, and they're going to give you a 10-year bonus. And technically, the way it works is you take a minimum required distribution based on the joint life expectancy of you and somebody deemed 10 years younger than you. Now, there's a, there's exceptions if you have a young spouse, but let's just stay with the main rule. So, to oversimplify again, if you're 70 and the um, and let's say that your life expectancy is 17 years and the joint life expectancy of you and somebody deemed 10 years younger is 27.4 years, That is your starting divisor. Then, the next year, your life expectancy goes down. Now, it doesn't go down quite by a full year, but the divisor becomes 26.5. Then the following year, 25.6. Then the next year, 24.7. So basically, the factor's going down, which means the minimum required distribution is going up. Now, depending on the investment results, if you're getting, let's say, 5 or 6%, then notwithstanding the fact that you're taking a distribution from your IRA, your balance is going up. Anyway, that's relatively common planning for a lot of people who can afford to take only the minimum out of their retirement plan. And I think that that's actually relatively well known, even if the details are not, that people want to take the minimum of their IRA unless they actually need the money. And if you go back to my original premise, don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later in the distribution stage, then we're going to um, take the minimum, we're going to take nothing until we hit 70, and then at 70 and beyond, we're going to take the minimum required distribution. Okay, so that makes sense um, while you are in the distribution stage. Well, what happens to your IRA after you die, all right? And not a lot of people really understand the essence of this. And I would say that the planning on this inherited IRA is botched, I don't know, maybe 90% of the time. Um, I don't have solid statistics on that. I've actually heard statistics higher than that, but certainly way more than 50%. But, of course, we're going to do this right. So first we're going to talk about what the existing law is right now. And then what is proposed, the chances of the proposal becoming law and how the new law will work. All right, so what is the current law that is known as the stretch IRA? All right, so let's say you and your spouse are dead and you leave your money to, um, let's say your child who is, um, let's say 40 years old. Your child would also be required to take a minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA, just like you are required to take a minimum required distribution of the IRA. Now, your child doesn't get the advantage of not having to take anything until 70. He must start taking it the year after you die. What your child has inherited now, this is a unique asset, and it is known as an inherited IRA, because remember, nobody has paid income taxes on this money. And whenever somebody, whether it's you or your grandchild or your child or, or anybody other than, say, a charity, makes a withdrawal from that inherited IRA, or even an IRA in your case, they're going to have to pay income taxes on it. So what did I say before? Don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later. So let's say that your child is in the fortunate position that maybe they're working and they don't need a ton of money of the inherited IRA to meet their expenses. Maybe you left them some after-tax dollars, too. But with the inherited IRA, what I would recommend is that they take just the minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA. So what they would do is they would go to publication 590, they would find the factor, which for a 40-year-old is 43.6. That becomes the divisor, and they divide that into the balance as of December 31 of the prior year, all right? So it's maybe, um, let's see, roughly, let's say 2.5%. Then the money is continued to be invested, and then the following year they have a minimum required distribution of the inherited ira but they have to take subtract one year from the life expectancy so it would be 42.6 divided by the balance the following year 41.6 the following year 40.6 the following year 39.6 etc 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 so this is known as the stretch ira and one of the things that we've been doing in our practices is we love the stretch ira we plan for it we do all the paperwork accordingly and one of the things that's a really a lot of fun and just provides enormous value to the family is if we sometimes have grandchildren or trust for the benefit of the grandchildren as the beneficiary of at least a portion of the IRA in which they get, what's, they get this enormous, quote, stretch. So the factor, instead of maybe being in the 40s, might be in the 70s or even 80s. That is, the grandchild's minimum required distribution would be very small because they would take their factor, divide it into the balanced, and if their factor is something like 80 or 75, then the amount that is being withdrawn is, is well less than 2%. And then, because the child is much, much younger, their minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA are much, much less than the child's, who, by the way, is still less than the surviving spouse. So anyway, that is basically what the stretch IRA is. Now, our office has done about 2,400 estate plans with the stretch IRA being a major, major component. Unfortunately, this enormous tax benefit we think is going to go away. This is what I have been fearing for literally years. So in 2013, there was a vote. Um, President Obama wanted it. Uh, the House, uh, the House uh, of Representatives wanted it. And it was actually only um, the Senate that stopped at 51-49. Unfortunately, so I, so I knew, I, I had a feeling it was coming. And I did everything I could to warn people. I felt like Paul Revere. The death of the stretch is coming. The death of the stretch is coming. So I included it in my book. I included it in multiple radio shows. I wrote two peer review articles. So if you were one of my clients, you would have received two peer review articles. I also actually wrote a book on it. So I basically said, okay... We, th- we think the death of the stretch IRA is coming. Here's what you should do now, and then here's what you should do when it actually passes, all right? And by the way, that book is available at no cost. All you have to do is go to my website at com. Again, com, and you can download that book for free. So I've really been on top of this issue, and I have been warning against what I fear is going to happen, which is going to be the death of the stretch IRA. So we talked in the first segment about, well, how does the stretch IRA work? All right, so what about the death of the stretch IRA? And first, before I even get into the details, what is the certainty that this thing is going to pass? Well, in September 2016, the Senate Finance Committee voted 26 to nothing to kill the stretch IRA. In the past, when the Senate Finance Committee has unanimously voted on anything in the tax code, it goes through. It also makes sense because Congress and the IRS want money. This is an easy, easy way for them to get money. So I and the majority of the experts that I've spoken with truly believe that this is going to pass sometime in the year 2017, and the way the legislation is written is it will actually be applied retroactively to anybody that dies after January on or after January 1, 2017. And if you're listening to this, that probably means you, because you're going to die sometime after January 1, 2017. And I'm going to assume for discussion's sake, if you're listening to this program, that you have an IRA or a retirement plan. So the next question then is, well, what happens to the IRA or retirement plan if this new law is in effect, which I firmly believe it will? Well, and let's 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 take away your spouse, which is an exception. We'll get to your spouse in a minute. But let's talk about what happens if you leave that money to a non spousal heir, which is typically your children equally. All right. So before, remember, I said that this was a unique asset because nobody has yet paid income taxes on that asset, that the asset um, has this income tax liability, but under the existing law, the heir can take a minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA over their own life expectancy and, in effect, defer the taxes on it, which is, in effect, don't pay taxes now, pay taxes later, um, even after death. Well, the proposed law would say that your heir would have to pay the income taxes on on the entire IRA, the entire inherited IRA within five years of your death. Now, think how miserable that would be. So let's say, let's keep the math simple. Let's say you die with a million dollars in your IRA, and at this point, your spouse is gone also. And to keep the math simple, let's assume that you leave all the money to one child. All right, so that one child, regardless of his age, subject to exception, will have to withdraw the entire million dollars out of the inherited IRA within five years. Now, assuming that that child has a job, or even if the child doesn't have a job, what happens when you take a million dollars out of the IRA out? Well, not only will that child have to pay income taxes on that million dollars, but that million dollars will likely jack that child's tax bracket perhaps to the top bracket And even if you're cute about it and you take out a certain amount each year, even if you're only taking out, say, $200,000 per year, that's still going to put your child at or near the top of the tax bracket. So the child could easily lose 40% of that IRA. And then the other question is, where are they going to get the income taxes to pay? I'm sorry, where are they going to get the money to pay the income taxes on the withdrawal of the IRA? If they have to go into the IRA again, that's going to cause more taxes, and then where are they going to get that money? And it's one of those circular calculations. I mean, we're talking about some serious, serious misery, and we think it's going to happen. You know, Congress and the IRS need money. Uh, This is one way that they're going to get money, and that is, again, the focus of the book And the book, by the way, is called The Ultimate Retirement and Estate Plan for Your Million Dollar IRA, including how to protect your nest egg from the pending death of the stretch IRA. And by the way, I should mention, I wrote that book before the Senate Finance Committee voted 26-0. So it's one of those, I hate to say I told you so, but unfortunately, I, I was right on that. All right. And, and by the way, what do I think about it? And I guess this isn't really a political show. And um, I, I usually just try to keep to substance rather than politics. But frankly, I hate it. I actually think that this is a heist of a middle class retirement. So, you know, if you even have I'm using the example of a million, but it, it has an impact on on anybody that has more than four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And I hate to say it, but $450,000 is not all that much today. Using a safe withdrawal rate, you're talking about $16,000 a year. So we're not talking about multimillionaires here. We're talking about things that are just going to hit the middle class and, and basically hit the children of people who've worked all their lives, worked 30 years, worked 40 years, and a lot of clients and a lot of Pittsburghers in general. So what do Pittsburghers have? We have a good work ethic. What does that mean? Does that mean that we took jobs that paid us a zillion dollars? No. But what we did is we took jobs when we were relatively young. We were prudent, so we put money in our retirement plan. Hopefully, if we were lucky, we work for a company that has a matching plan or will put something in for us. Like if you work at the University of Pittsburgh, for example, if you put in 8%, they contribute 12%. Um, or if you worked for Westinghouse or PPG or, or actually probably most of the bigger companies had some kind of 401k plan or in the nonprofit sector, a 403b plan. So even though our salaries weren't fabulous and we had car payments and we had house payments and we paid for the kids braces and we paid for the kids college. So it was really hard to get ahead, but we were prudent. So we always put money in our retirement plans it was often matched, so now you know, we're in our 60s, 70s, maybe even beyond, and most of our money is in a retirement plan, and having more than $450,000 isn't all that much. Um, a lot of people have a lot more than that, and that's who this law is going to hurt. So they are going to hurt the, tr- the person who has been working for 30, 40 years, diligently put money in your retirement plan like you were supposed to, and here's the other thing. During those years when you were putting away that money, the rule was if you died and you left that money, that IRA or inherited IRA to your children or grandchildren, the rules at the time, this, this goes back to the 80s, were they were allowed to stretch or defer the income taxes on that money. And that might have been part of your calculation. Okay, another advantage of me putting money in my retirement plan is that the children will be able to use it, in effect, for their retirement plan. So those are the rules. I'm going to play by the rules. And now, late in the game, after you've accumulated all this money, the IRS comes and says, hey, no, after you die, we're not going to let your children stretch the ira over their lifetimes they're going to have to pay the income taxes in five years after you die so i actually think it's horrible i really resent it and you know the idea that they're going to completely abolish the estate tax so people with multi-billion dollars can pass on multi-billion dollars to their heirs without a nickel of tax and then the middle class who has four hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more in their IRA, anything more than $450,000 is going to get whacked. And then your child's going to have to pay the income taxes on the whole thing within five years, unless they do some of the things that we are going to talk about. So I actually think that this is a pretty miserable, miserable law, but it is going to happen. So I mentioned $450,000 a couple times. So what are the, let's say, areas of relief for this law? Well, the first very good piece of news is this will not apply to your surviving spouse. So, if you have an IRA or 401k or 403b, etc., and you leave the money to your spouse, like most of us who are married do, uh, the new laws won't have any impact, and we use the old law which basically, to oversimplify, we usually recommend the surviving spouse do a trustee-to-trustee transfer, better known as a rollover. There is a technical difference. We like the trustee-to-trustee transfer into their own or a separate um, IRA. And they get to take minimum required distributions, when they're 70, they don't have to take out anything like your, your kids. And even after they're 70, they can use the favorable uh, rates that is the bonus 10-year joint life expectancy. So if you die and leave it to your spouse, there, there is no real immediate impact in terms of the difference with the new law. The difference will come when the money goes to a non-spouse. So what is the other favorable exception? The law, at least as it is written right now, and this, by the way, came as a surprise. So if you look at my book, the book itself does not have this particular feature that I'm talking about, which is that the IRS will allow $450,000 per IRA owner. So let's say for discussion's sake that you die with $1,450,000 and you leave it to your son. What the proposed law says is that the, your son can use the old stretch IRA or inherited IRA laws for the 450, but will have to pay income taxes on the remaining amount, the remaining $1 million, within five years of your death. All right? So that becomes pretty pretty darn important. Um, so if, if you and your spouse have a total of less than $450,000 in your combined IRAs and retirement plans, and it's not going to grow beyond that, then you probably don't have to worry too much about what this proposed law is. But if you happen to have more than 450000 or combined with your spouse. By the way, I can't even say more than 900000 for reasons that I'll get into, just for more than a combined total of $450,000 or more, then you have to really think about what the impact of this law is and decide what to do about it. Let me give you at least a little bit of an idea. If you die with, let's say, um, maybe about a million dollars under the old law, versus the new law, um, and, and now I'm not talking about the $450,000 ex- exception, but the difference over time could literally be the difference between and using the same interest rate, the same spending, the same everything else, and if anybody's interested, I'd be happy to give you all the details, but to spare you the boredom, I won't. But the upshot of it is, in in the first example, where the income is accelerated, your child runs out of, and using certain assumptions, your ru- child runs out of money at age 82. Um, using the exact same assumptions, except the child has the benefit of the st- of the stretch IRA or the existing law, they have 2.5 million at that same point in their lifetime. So just think about the difference. It's just so enormous the difference between your child being broke or your child being having 2.5 million. So. This is an enormous point, and it's even exacerbated if you're leaving it to a grandchild. The difference literally could be the grandchild being broke or the grandchild having believe it or not like fifteen million dollars, depending on the assumptions so this is really important stuff. The exclusion is is going to be an important planning component, and one of the things that is pretty tricky about the exclusion in fact our office was didn't quite understand exactly the way it worked until we really delved into it. Is that so I said I said very simply, let's assume for discussion's sake that you have one million four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you leave it to your child, and then I pretended as if your child could treat the four hundred and fifty thousand as exclusion and the million dollars as um as accelerated or uh, the death of the stretch IRA. But actually, it's it's actually a little bit worse than that. And I'm not going to try to get too technical, but I think it is important to know that basically the exclusion is prorated. You can't pick and choose which $450,000 you want to stretch. So, for example, let's say you had $1,450,000. Wouldn't it be delightful to say, okay, I'm going to leave the $450,000 into a well-drafted trust for the benefit of my grandchildren, and they they can take advantage of the stretch IRA over their lifetime using this exception, which is the $450,000 exclusion. Then I'm going to leave the million dollars to my children. They'll have to pay the income taxes on five years, um, but at least I'll still get this great $450,000 stretch for my grandchildren. Well, that would be great, except you're not allowed to do that. You have to prorate. So what does that mean? That means at your death, you have to take all your retirement plans, your, your IRA, IRAs, your 401Ks, your 403Bs, your SEPs, your Kios, even your Roths and your Roth IRAs. Um, and you add them all together. Then first you get a, let's say, a ratio of the exclusion amount between traditional and Roth. And then for each beneficiary, they're going to get a certain percentage of the exclusion. So let's just, let's just say you had three kids and you're leaving all the money to three kids equally. Um, all three kids would have the same amount of excluded from the death of the stretch IRA and accelerated, which is the death of the stretch IRA. So we can't play the kind of games that we want, that we might want in terms of allocating the exclusion to whoever we want. Now the good news is, is that the proration does not have anything to do with going to the surviving spouse. So let's just say for discussion's sake that you have $1,450,000, you leave a $1 million to your spouse, you leave $450,000 to your son. Your son can use the four hundred and fifty thousand dollars as the old rules or the existing law is regarding the stretch IRA, and your spouse can do whatever she, he, or she wants with the million dollar IRA, including it, including including rolling it into his or her own IRA or doing a spousal IRA, etc. So the spouse is not included in this proration, and likewise charities. And charitable trusts are not included. Now, this is a very important point. And by the way, if you, I actually wrote an addendum on this death of the stretch IRA after the $450,000 exclusion was known. And at the time, I didn't realize that you didn't have to prorate with charities. So I wrote an addendum. And if you were one of the earlier readers of the addendum, you would have seen, oh, you might have to prorate even with charity. And I, I didn't—it's It was. It's a very technical point regarded, regarding um, Internal Revenue Code Section 401A9, and I I missed it, and, and people in my office missed it, and we're actually in the process of redoing the addendum. Um, at least other than that, I think that's the only issue with the addendum. But the addendum does talk about a lot of strategies. And by the way, by the time you hear this, that will have been fixed— and I'm going to recommend that you download that addendum. Again, that's at paytaxeslater.com addendum, A-D-D-E-N-D-U-M. So what, is, what basically happens then is you do have to prorate it, but you don't have to include the spousal share or the charitable share. Or what we're going to get to later is a share that might go to a charitable remainder trust that's a little hint of what are some of the potential solutions to this death of the stretch IRA that will the charitable re, the charitable remainder trust or it's sometimes called a crut which we would use instead of leaving it to your child in many cases will end up leaving more money or in a greater cash flow to your child um, but we will get into that it will work um, for a relatively limited number of people now I'm going to skip all the math. I have I have a couple mathematical examples of how the proration law works. Um, but I'm, I'm going to save you from that um, and just talk a little bit more about some of the exceptions from the five-year rule. So I mentioned the spouse, all right? Um, I also mentioned charities and charitable remainder trusts. I also um, mentioned... The um, $450,000 exclusion. All right. So what are some other exceptions? Well, they they do make some exceptions for disabled um, in the beneficiaries, for chronically ill beneficiaries, um, for very young beneficiaries. All right. So for minors, and it might depend on which state uh, you are in. On the other hand, it's not as great as it sounds because as soon as that minor is not a minor, boom, we start the 5-year clock running again. Um the other thing is if you are if you if you have inherited an IRA already and you are stretching the minimum required distribution of the inherited IRA or even with that $450,000 exclusion, if you die The beneficiary of that inherited IRA, in other words, the inherited IRA of the inherited IRA, that will also be accelerated um, for five years. Now, there's some special strategies that we get into with special needs trusts, which is probably a little bit too specific for this general program, but um, if you have a special needs beneficiary, whether it's a child or a grandchild, there's some real opportunity um there always has been but now there's even more opportunity for some sophisticated planning all right so i think i've given you some idea of what the problem is so just think of it from a very broad standpoint after the exclusion you're going to have to come up your your kids are going to have to come up with income taxes on the entire inherited ira if they don't have any money outside the ira It's going to really just decimate your IRA that will wipe out anywhere between a third and maybe even up to a half of what you have spent a whole lifetime accumulating. I think it's grossly unfair. I really resent it. On the other hand, rather than hiding my head in the sand like an ostrich, I'm saying, okay, this thing is coming. What the heck should we do about it? All right? So why don't we get into... Let's say that we think this thing is coming. On the other hand, at least at this point, it's not a done deal. It's not a certainty. And one thing that's very important, and you hear this in the practice of, the med- of medicine: first, do no harm. We do the same thing in uh, wealth advising: first, do no harm. But let's do things that will hopefully work out, whether they change the law or not. So those are. That's going to be the emphasis. Of what we're going to talk about. Okay, so I think that what I have done up to now, um, or at least attempted to do, is to really define the scope of the problem. And then probably the next segment, or actually the entire next show, is going to be okay, now we know what the problem is, we know how it's going to work, what the heck should I do about it, and what the heck should I do about it, knowing that it's still not a done deal. So we don't want to harm ourselves. We don't want to harm our families in the event that I'm wrong and it doesn't pass. But what, what should we do about it? So what we're going to do, we're going to wrap up with a five-minute talk um, with Mari Fay and the Westinghouse Shore Group, which is my special way of acknowledging the fabulous volunteer work that they do. And then when we come in for the next show, we're going to talk about what we should do about it. One of the problems with listening, watching, or reading the news is everything seems to be bad. We hear about murders. We hear about rapes. We hear about the deficit. We hear about shootings. We've just suffered through the nastiest campaign in our history. I thought I would take a minute to talk about something that is positive and something that is good that we hardly ever hear about there's an all-volunteer organization that consists of retired Westinghouse employees that just do an incredible job volunteering their time in a variety of areas. Here's Maury Fay, the past president of the Westinghouse Shore Group, to tell us a little bit about it. Maury?
2: Thanks, Jim. I'm more than glad to talk about the Westinghouse Shore Program. Uh, it began about 25 years ago, as a matter of fact, under the first President Bush's 1,000 Points of Light program, uh, and started very small, and it's been going on ever since. Uh, we now uh, have nearly a 1,000 members in this organization, and we currently are performing volunteer services in about 80 different uh, different, uh program areas. Uh, over the years, we have uh, done nearly a 1,200,000 volunteer hours of service to these 80 and several that are no longer with us. The SURE organization uh, not only uh, works in the uh, current uh, uh, community arena. But we also have a very large member service program, and uh, under which we have uh, various social activities for the folks. Uh, an excellent newsletter that uh, uh, consists of twenty or twenty-five pages uh, that's produced uh, twi- six times a year. And furthermore, uh, we do educational seminars, uh, things of interest. Uh, to retirees in the areas of financial planning, uh, estate planning, uh, health care, insurance uh, areas, uh, particularly uh, health insurance. Uh, Now, coming back around to the financial area, uh, we currently have two-hour meetings once a month. Uh, those meetings consists of uh, not only financial planning but also estate planning, other legal uh, aspects which uh, are important to uh, retirees. Uh, one, by the way, one of the one of the uh, folks who have been active in presenting these financial seminars is a young, well, he used to be a very young attorney by the name of James Lang. Uh, that's you, Jim. Not, and, not
1: so young anymore.
2: And not so young anymore, but like I say, that's you, and you've been extremely faithful and uh, have been just a, a joy to, for us to work with uh, over the years, and we very, very much appreciate it. Now, I'm sure there are people uh, amongst the roughly 50,000, maybe 60,000 Westinghouse retirees that are saying, gee, I think I'd like to belong to that organization. Uh, we certainly would welcome uh, anyone uh, who w- would care to join us, uh, but you must be either a Westinghouse retiree or a retiree of one of the, uh, the surviving uh, Westinghouse units which are now, uh, belong to other companies.
1: And Mari, uh, if, let's say that a Westinghouse employee or retiree is listening and they are interested. Could you give them, uh, a contact information, ab- a telephone number, a website or something for them to go to?
2: Absolutely. Our website is www.westinghouseshore, all one word, dot .org. Uh, we have a an address which folks can write to uh, Westinghouse Shore, uh, 641 Braddock Avenue, East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 15112. Uh, so we can you can reach us both ways.
1: And I and I will just say that having had experience with the Westinghouse retirees for just just about 20 years, I will say that they are. The most uh, honorable trustworthy uh, good people and and smart and nice that I know so anyway Mari thank you for your faithful service thank all the Westinghouse retirees for their million-plus hours of volunteer services and there we said something good on the radio Thank you again, Maury.
2: You're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com.